Good Tuesday morning, guys. My name is Jerry Miller, and thank you for joining us on the Jerry and Jerry Show. We are live in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia, a hop, skip, and a jump away from the University of Virginia, and Thomas Jefferson's vision, guys. We're right around the corner from the John Paul Jones Arena in Scott Stadium, and today's program is going to be dynamic. You know why? Because you, the viewer and listener, can shape the show and ask wonderful Wally Walker some questions as we take a trip down memory lane and also look to what's in store for this Virginia Athletic Department. Judah Wickhauer is our director and producer. We always give him props early in the program because Hootie and I get to do what we love. We get to talk sports in a school that we love so dearly. Judah, if you could go to the studio camera and show the star of our show, Jerry Hootie Ratcliffe, the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, who has done a tremendous job, a heck of a job, welcoming a guest of talented and epic proportions. Hootie, the show is yours, my friend. Well, I, it's my pleasure to welcome Wally into the show. Uh, I've known him for years. Um, I didn't cover Virginia when he played, but I was covering other schools in the ACC at the time and, and had the pleasure of watching him play and uh, gotten to know him over the years and what an incredible, genuine person he is. And uh, I've admired his career and how successful he's been, not only as a player, but as a uh, guy in the front office and uh, then his starting his own business and, and being highly successful and now he's returned to UVA as a deputy AD and uh, I think your title is about I know. 14 inches long. <laughs> I'm not sure I can get it on a car. I don't have a car yet. I may never have one. You can never put that on the <laughs> no, back of exactly. your jersey, that's for right. sure. <laughs> but uh, we'd like to welcome in Wally Walker. Um, he rode with the 1976 ACC basketball tournament, the miracle at Landover, and uh, MVP of that tournament, winning the the uh, the MVP award, uh, was named after uh, oh God, uh, the, the coach at NC State, who uh, yeah, Everett Case. Everett Case. I don't know why I can't slip my mind. Getting old, I guess. But um, w- welcome to the show, Wally. Thank welcome you. back Thank to Charlottesville. Great to be here. Uh, it's awesome to have you here. And, and, you know, before we get into the meat of the show, I, uh, I'm going to ask you, I think I, I mentioned this to you before, but uh, a lot of the people are just wondering, why are you back in Charlottesville? <laughs> you had such an incredible life out in Seattle. Why would you come back to Charlottesville? That, that is true. And uh, we assumed, uh, my wife Lynn and I, we were going to be in Seattle forever because we've been there a whole married life. And, and it did have a... Uh, a Great setup in Seattle. Uh, a couple of things. One, I've been given credit for making a big sacrifice for coming back here, though. That, that's that's crazy. That's ridiculous. For those of you who live here, know. Did he uh, bring the weather with him? Yeah, it says feel like Seattle today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little chilly. Yeah, I got soaked coming over here. That's okay. I'm used to that. But the reality is, this is a fantastic place to live. So the, I appreciate people giving me credit for making a sacrifice. For us, it does not feel like a sacrifice. So we, we love this place, and, and that's, of course, part of it. Uh, but I got triggered last spring, and in fact, late last spring into the summer, by what happened with Stanford and, and the Pac-12. Uh, my graduate degree is from the Stanford Business School. Uh, that's my second favorite sports program. It's a distant second, but it, it is second. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a sports program, athletic program, that won, has won the Director's Cup 90% of the time of the existence of the Director's Cup. All but three years since 1993, Stanford has had the best overall athletic program yep. in this country. And for them to be orphaned like they were by their conference, the Pac-12, and seemingly not have an answer or 
anticipate what was going on, got me thinking and talking to folks back here, well, what are we doing to make sure we're out ahead of this? And, uh, you know, it's a, there's a lot of happenstance and coincidence, and some people think maybe it isn't coincidence, but uh, I spent a fair amount of time with President Ryan last winter and spring. He was in Seattle, and I was back here, and then there was a Terry Holland Memorial, and uh, I spent some time with Carl and, and President Ryan then, and then started talking uh, to them this summer. And uh, one thing led to another, and Carla called me in September about the position I currently have with the title that, you know, is very long. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as deputy AD, that, I guess that's a pretty big umbrella, but what specifically are your duties as, it's, as it's that a, it's long a, title? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a revenue job. Uh, <laughs> Chief revenue officer, I better get that right. Um, but that encompasses all the places where we raise money, which, we, by the way, we still need the traditional means of athletic departments raising money. We, we still need our boosters to help. And NIL is, of course, at the top of everyone's list now. Uh, we're talking to, to boosters. We, we need their help there to be competitive. And I'm like, I think most, uh, if not all, uh, didn't like it uh, and went through the stages of grief, uh, if you remember that. Uh, the five stages you go through denial and, and anger and now I'm at the acceptance phase uh, it, it seems like more people are but some, some aren't there yet well if we want to compete we got to accept the fact that's our landscape now I don't know if it's going to change I hope some of it does change but we can't count on somebody else changing the rules we got to be out ahead of it now so the old-fashioned way the blocking and tackling of hey uh, you know great UVA supporter we, we need your help on this to be competitive but there are going to be new, innovative, entrepreneurial ways to raise money for NIL that are just starting to come to the fore. We're in those conversations. Uh, it's too early to talk about you know, any specifics there. But just know, I hope our listeners will know, that we're looking at all that. And to think we can do things the same way we always have and, and stay ahead of, uh, of the situation would be naive. So uh, we're open to it. The, the administration is open to it. Carl and I talked about it yesterday. We're going to look at all of them, and uh, you know, we're going to hope to be poised to take advantage. Now, getting back to your original question, Jerry, with the change, it's a sea change in college athletics. I don't think I would have come back here if it was the status quo, as much as I lo lo love this place. But with all the change, it creates opportunity. Mm -hmm. And th that part I like a lot. So, again, I I I'm here to help us. I hope find the opportunities to you know, advance competitively. And we're already in a good position, but, again, it's a whole new, whole new landscape. Is the is the purist? Let me throw this to you. Is the sure. purist in you the? I think Hootie and I. I don't want to speak to for my colleague. The best boss I ever had here worked <laughs> at the newspaper at one time under his tutelage. We're both purists when it comes to college athletics. I think you and I are. Is yeah. the purist in you, Wally, um, appreciative or concerned of how the landscape has changed so quickly? I look at college sports now. Part of me doesn't even recognize it. That's all valid, and I hear that a lot. I feel it, too, to, to your point and question. Sure. I mean, I, I, I like the delineation between amateur and professional sports. I like the fact that colleges were amateur. But guess what? It's all changed. There, there's a Supreme Court ruling. Uh, that's not going to get unraveled, uh, I don't believe. There may be some tweaks to it. The transfer portal, I don't like either. Uh, I mean, I've used this analogy because I ran a professional sports team for 12 years. If your whole roster were, were free agents every single year, which is really the case now in college sports, it would be unmanageable at the professional level. 
Well, I, I can't speak for our coaches or any coaches that it's unmanageable, but it's much harder. They got to allocate resources, NIL resources, and they got to worry about you know what's going on because what we do know, and we know of course it's wrong against the rules, but it's happening where players everywhere are getting contacted during their season. Right. Hey, you're not getting enough shots, you're not getting enough touches, or enough time. You know, we're interested in you, and you know, let's put yourself in the portal at the end of the year, and you know, you'll benefit. Well, that's that's not right, and but it, it is what it is. So we again, we we don't have to play that game. That's a dirty game, but we have to be at least prepared with resources, so that uh, you know the people we want we can attract. Yeah, that that's the madness of it all. Is that professional sports actually have better rules now? Yeah. than college sports. Well, it used to be the, kind of the other way around. Well, by the way, it's a two way street too, and <clears throat> we're going to be hearing more and more of these stories. A player gets offered NIL money, you know, transfers, and maybe he or she gets hurt. Maybe they're not as good as the coach thought or whomever gave offering the money when they get there. Well, the next year that NIL money for them at that institution, and we already, again, it's happened, mm-hmm. and we're going to hear more and more about it, is gone. And, you know, the player has no recourse. Uh, you know, there's no contract like you have in the pros. Uh, you play when you sign a contract, you're protected. Uh, so it's going to disadvantage the fact that it was just kind of this wild west for both the institution and the, and the, and the players. Uh, there are going to be a lot of bad stories. And uh, what blew my mind a few weeks ago is when the news came out that Arch Manning was paid $3.2 million this year in NIL money, and he didn't even play. Yeah. And Brock Purdy, who may end up being the MVP of the NFL, is making $850,000. For his San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. Very well could be the MVP. And how about Matt Rule saying that uh, a quarterback, if you want to get a good quarterback in the transfer portal, it's a million five to two million. And even Jim Harbaugh, right before the national championship, when Michigan got a victory, go blue, he was politicking and lobbying that the money should be shared. I mean, he was straight up saying that in the press conference. So it's, as your point, as you've highlighted on this show, Hootie, it is the Wild West. Oh, yeah, there's no question about it. Well, the the thing, you know, purist or not, amateur, which, again, going back, you know, walk through the snow for six miles and bear kind of of (laughs) analogy, we're not going back there. But the the concept that I think does work and and should have probably always worked is for a commercial enterprise to be willing to pay an athlete for endorsing their product. Caitlin Clark, I think, is exhibit A. The fact that she's making allegedly a million dollars plus at, at Iowa because she stayed for a year is more she, than she could get paid in the WNBA. Right. And that's to the, her benefit, but it's also the benefit of, of the product she's endorsing. So why shouldn't she be able to take advantage of that or, or any athlete? And, and we have athletes here doing that too, particularly our, 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 as I understand it, our women swimmers. Well, they're the best in the world. They, they should get commercial opportunities. Sure, I have uh, no problem with that. But it, it, the trickier one is the fact that uh, the NILs are raising money to you know, basically, it's not pay for play, uh, allegedly, but uh, that you know, there, there's a dotted line there. So that's just where we are. I, I was told this recently, and I, I can't validate it, but I, I was told this by a guy who is a former Power 5 basketball uh, assistant coach. It said that nowadays when you go into a, a recruit's living room, 
uh, used to be you talked to him about the benefits of coming to your school in terms of um, scholarship and education and playing time and facilities and that stuff. And before that conversation even gets started now, they want to say, how much can you pay me? Yeah, I've heard that too. It's out there. That's, uh, that's a sad state. It is. It is. <laughs> and, of course, that part is against the rules. Such that The few rules that you have with NIL, that is one that is supposed not to happen. But, of course, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, and I completely agree with what you said, Wally, that I have no problem with um, athletes earning uh, income and revenue for their name, their image, their likeness. Um, that's why we go to the John Paul Jones Arena. That's why we go to Scott Stadium. You mentioned Caitlin Clark. She's selling at arenas anywhere yep. she goes. So she's benefiting, but let's cut to the chase. Iowa is very much benefiting. Another good example was, and this is you know, 10 years ago or so, when Johnny Manziel was Johnny Football, uh, mm-hmm. Texas A&M was selling out everywhere he went. And they did, there's a, there's a documentary on Netflix about this. They did a total stadium renovation because of the success of Johnny Football on the gridiron. Uh, and at that time, he wasn't really able to own it, earn any income, so he had to go outside of the box and do things he probably shouldn't have done um, in retrospect. So I'll throw this to you here. You are entrusted as potentially the architect of putting this all together, at least one of the ringleaders of putting this all together. What are the first steps, the path of, uh, of fruition for what you're going to do? Well, uh, one, I'm going to have a lot of help, and I, I've got a great boss in Carla Williams who, who, who sees it for what it is. We, we've got to uh, get in this game in, in a big way, and at this point, we don't know what that means specifically. It just means we've got to be touching all the bases. If some entrepreneur comes to us, and this has happened, with an idea that it's never been done before, we can't just dismiss it by saying, oh, it hasn't been done before, we've got to worry about the NCAA rules, and of course, University of Virginia is going to abide by the, by the rules goes without saying, should go without saying. But that doesn't mean we can't be aggressive in finding ways uh, and w- whatever those are because this university has great resources. We've got great supporters. We've got supporters with the means to help. And we've got very financially savvy supporters too. So you know, we need to be looking at everything. And, and uh, another area I didn't mention, but it, it is, is part of my bailiwick too, is sponsorship. Uh, you know, every sports program, amateur professional, uh, university, anywhere, needs sponsors, and, and almost all of them have them. But, you know, a lot of naming inventory and things that have traditionally not been used in college, I think, in fact, I know, we have to start looking at those. Because uh, it may not be traditional to see a, a corporate name somewhere we haven't seen before, but that's our reality. That's more the pro model. And, and the comparison that, that I've been using is, you know, the, the corporate names on NBA jerseys. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a little blowback about that at the time. Uh, it's not traditional, you know, whatever pejorative thing people said about having a, a company name on a jersey. Well, you guys have a vantage point. I remember that lasting a couple of months. Now it's gone away, and people, I don't think even, maybe they, I guess the sponsors hope they notice, but I don't think people really care. And they should, but yeah. why? Sh- those are all platforms that we have to start looking at uh, as long as they're allowed. So you see potentially um, naming rights for an arena or a stadium, potentially, like well, we see in the NF- uh, NFL. Well, again, I'll go back. Everything we have to look at. There, there's, there's nothing, and that doesn't mean, you know, at the end of the day, when you have something major here at the University of Virginia, 
I know this firsthand, the BOV is going to have, have a say. Sure. But it, we can't not at least present that, think about it, understand the risk-reward, and, and all that's on the table. Look, I yeah, love it. I was going to ask you about the cor corporate sponsors and that you well addressed. Do you think that the way things have changed also in, in terms of sports opening up to the, the world of sports gambling, that we could possibly see casinos? involved with sponsoring college teams or, or, or putting their names on, on buildings? Well, that's a slippery slope. Uh, again, there is legalized gambling now yeah. in, in many states, not all. Yeah, in fact, you can uh, bet at a lot of stadiums now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the owners of the, uh, at least majority shareholders of Las Vegas Sands just bought the Dallas Mavericks. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, where that lands in terms of college sports, I think that one, at least for me, I'm kind of not ready to, for, for that one. Right. Uh, but, uh, again, I'll, I'll go back. I'll repeat myself. At this point, you, if, as you look down the road for the resources going to be required to do it competitively, you, you can't rule anything out. And, and I suppose, like you said, you, you've got to find some new streams of revenue because for years, I guess – and I'm sure Virginia's not the only one in this boat, but a lot of you guys have to keep going back to the same people. Yeah. And at some point, it's not the, the well hasn't run dry, but at some point, I guess they get exhausted from the asking, right? Well, <laughs> uh, I, I paid, a lot, paid a lot of tuition to go to graduate business school, and <laughs> the term substitution does come to my mind <laughs> if you're if you're. Asking for NIL, does that mean you get less over here for, for scholarships? From the, if you're going back to the same person, same pot, to use a euphemism. I think the answer uh, is yes. <laughs> the answer yeah. is yes. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, and so, listen, uh, our, our boosters, many of them keep up in the ante, but at, at some point, yeah, you've got to find other sources. Yes. I'm very excited for uh, the potential here. I'm very excited to see how you uh, organize and galvanize everything because you have a mind for business and college athletics and professional sports. How are you going to utilize your experience with the Supersonics? And I want to highlight this for the viewers and listeners, for those that don't know. He was the general manager of the Seattle Supersonics. He served as a minority owner for 12 years. He held titles like president and CEO from 2001 to 2006. He was also the president of the WNBA Seattle Storm starting in 2001. He kind of hinted at the Board of Visitors. What this humble man did not highlight was he was on the Board of Visitors for years from 1997 <laughs> to 2001. Yeah, he yeah. was on the Board of Visitors. So how do you utilize your executive experience? I mean, you've got time with Goldman Sachs. Um, how do you utilize that um, in this new arena? That perception has changed. That's, it has a little bag these days. <laughs> I remember when Goldman Sachs was the revered. The gold standard. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. And in some ways still is, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll move beyond that. Um, I'm just hoping I can help look at things, you know, given my experience, in a way they, they might not have been looked at before in, in college athletics. Because, again, we're going to have to borrow some from – the revenue models of professional teams. And, and of course, I was in charge of that. 2001, because for my first seven years with the Sonics, I was just a basketball ops. I was a general manager. I had a title president general manager. But I was just a cost center. Uh, my, I had a payroll. 
and, and we had a budget and we had to win within that payroll. So that is analogous now to what coaches are having to do with NIL money. They're going to have to mm-hmm. allocate that. Uh, but, by the way, I'm proud to say that we, we had a really good record. I, in those seven years, we had the third best record in the NBA. We also had a low payroll. So Had a good coach, Nate McMillan, if memory yeah, serves. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yes, we did. We got to the final. Uh, George Carl was in the, in the Hall of Fame. We got, he just got inducted in the Hall of Fame in 95-96. In we played the Bulls in the final with, with, with that team. But where I'm going is this. It's possible we don't have to have the most NIL money. University of Washington, we watched play last night. Mm-hmm. I know from my Seattle ties and roots, uh, they were not anywhere close to where SEC schools were with NIL money. But you have to allocate correctly, and that's a whole new skill set that I don't know if I'll be asked to do it. But I, what I do know is it's possible, and I, I'll continue uh, uh, telling that message to our, our donors, sponsors at, at all, entrepreneurs, that – we need to be in the hunt for NIL money, and, but we, we, and we have to have a goal, and we have to have an aspiration of how we're going to spend it, but we don't have to have the most money. So let's, you know, we, can, we can get off that. But we need more than we have. Let me, let me make that clear. Sure. But starting with 2001, I moved over because the, the, the franchise was losing money, uh, and not because of the, the NBA team's payroll. It was, it was a revenue issue. So, again, we had to look at everything uh, differently from, from the revenue side. We had the storm, uh, which was losing money, and we got that from the worst team in the WNBA to being the, the WNBA champion within three years. Uh, Sue Bird, getting number one pick draft, and Sue Bird helped a lot. Good. And that was Lauren, a great pick. Yeah, and Lauren Jackson the year before that. Lauren Jackson, uh, U.S. fans may not remember her quite as clearly as, of course, Sue Bird played for 20 years. Lauren was the best player in the world for a couple of years, an Australian player. So anyway, we, we did that, but we also, just to take, we, we, you have to look at synergies. And, and I got to an organization as a CEO in 01 where the Storm people were over here, the Sonic people were over here. Well, wait a minute, we're all the same organization. Let's help each other. We have different seasons. Um, and, and, you know, let's help in, in, in your off season, let's help the team that's in season and, and, and vice versa. Uh, and, we, of course, I'm, my responsibility now is not <clears throat> on the cost side, but you have to be cognizant of that. And to that point, University of Virginia last year finished fourth in the Director's Cup. We can all be proud of that. Absolutely. Uh, and by, there's, there's a chart that uh, Steve Pritzker, who's the CFO, showed me that I've said internally we need to d- demonstrate this more to our boosters because it, it lists us as the most efficient athletic department in the country. In other words, huh. the, the, the most success on our, our playing fields, courts, mm-hmm. pools, et cetera, relative to, to our revenue. Okay, that, that's great. That speaks to, you know, good organization, good management. But we, we still need more revenue because everyone else is generating it different ways. Yeah, our, that is something to be proud of. I remember back, gosh, early two, 2000s that I guess John Castine told Craig Littlepage that he wanted – Virginia to become the Stanford of the East, and he and John Oliver set out on that trail, and they, they essentially have become the Stanford of the East in terms of a total athletic department. Our Olympic sports are, are, are excellent, yeah. and we keep winning national championships, and we keep winning more than anybody else in, in the ACC over, if you look at the right time frame, of course we can be biased in our time frame, but that, that's our reality for, for quite a while now. It's not just a couple of years. It, 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 I think it goes back to 2015 or so, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. Um, that's impressive. And that speaks to, uh, Jerry, I told you this. I, 
one of the perks of my new job is I'm meeting the coaches, most of whom I didn't know at all. And after I spend half an hour, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour with them, I'm sitting in my office by myself thinking, I wish I was 18 years old and I could come play for you. <laughs> he wants to suit up. <laughs> yeah, put me in, coach. I'm, I'm ready to go. Because uh, they're, they're great. They, they embrace this place. They, they know, it, one, they, they, they love it here and, and embrace the culture. They know because of how we do things, it's not always easy um, and, and more challenging, but they, they all seem to, to not, well, I'll go back and use that word. They, they embrace it. Hey, that, that's who we are and we can win with this and, and we're going to. I love that. We've got questions coming in. This one's from down the road in Scottsville, Virginia. And then we'll head to Richmond, um, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and Northern Virginia with questions. First from Scottsville, Philip Dow. How do you keep a high rate of graduation in the work you are doing? And I'll add to his question while also prioritizing incremental revenue generation. So the last part is me. The first part is Philip. Yeah, well, I, I certainly... Don't ever think, and not for a second, that anything we're doing to generate revenue should be to the detriment of, of our student athletes getting their education. There, there are still many, fortunately for us, who, who care about getting an education here, and the graduation rate is fantastic. That is a point of emphasis and pride, as, as it should be and always will be here. That's not going to get lost in anything that we're doing to generate revenue. Uh, I do think there will be some NIL demands in terms of time, uh, for athletes that are getting paid something, they're going to have to make charitable appearances if they're getting it through the foundation. If they're have, doing something commercially through a sponsor, they're going to have to do something for them, obviously, to earn the money. In either case, that's a time allocation. I can speak for myself. I did fine academically. Well, I didn't my first year. Uh, <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> yeah, but, but I still found time to play cards and waste time. And, uh, I, I didn't tell everyone, not my parents anyway, I know that. So it's a time allocation of thing, but our athletes are fantastic. They, they understand the value of education, so uh, we all, we got to monitor it, but I'm not worried about that one. It's, it's really our job on the revenue side to find ways for them to, uh, to have things to do to, to earn money. Uh, another question for you here. Let's go to Richmond for this one. What does he think of the conference shuffle? Seems like every time I turn on ESPN, another conference is either adding teams are potentially folding altogether. Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier, the Pac-12 and Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved Oregon State and Washington State because they're in small towns. They don't have the big urban influence that most of the rest of the Pac-12. They've competed well in some sports and time without the resources. And for them to be left without a conference, I hate it. I hate what's happened to the Pac-12. And I'm really worried that if we're not strong and we don't, we're not competitive in some ways, particularly on the revenue side, we could be vulnerable both as a university and as a league uh, to what's happening in the Pac-12. That's, what, that's why I'm here. We've got, we got to avert that. And, again, I'll, I'll, I'll give credit to administration, President Ryan and Carla Williams, because they, they see it. And, of course, uh, Jim Ryan's got a ringside seat with being president of the ACC presence with what's, right. what's going on with the squawking in Florida State and uh, I don't expect it's going to end, uh, but you know, fortunately, you know, ACC was better run than the Pac-12. The Pac-12, it was so easy for the schools to leave that, that they left. They, they were incentivized by money, and I, I like the fact that ACC is much more punitive to leave. And uh, the fact you lose the kind of the geographic rivalries, uh, the legacy of the Pac-12 was Bill Walton. We talked about earlier before the show. Uh, 
Okay. Might be evaporating. Might be evaporating. Yeah. If we all had ten dollars for every time Bill said conference of champions, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we'd all retire. Uh, but it happened to be true. Uh, you know, Stanford, USC, UCLA are still the top three for for national championships, and I hope Virginia can uh, get in that conversation. Yeah, it is a shame to see what happened to that conference, and I, I think it had poor leadership. The last two commissioners, I think, just didn't understand modern day college athletics and. Didn't understand what they had. I, I can't sit here and say I know all the nuances, but they turned down deals that end up the schools getting you know worse deals than what they turned down. And uh, well, for the the DMA is the term used for the demographics as uh, TV rights holders decide how much they're going to pay uh, for those rights. Uh, the Pac-12 had incredible. We had all these urban areas on the on the West Coast and and in, in the mountain region too. And for them not to maximize that uh, was a, just an incredible miss. I mean, a perfect example of the changing landscape is one of the NFL playoff games this weekend is streamed exclusively on the Peacock app. Yeah. It's not available on standard television. And we've watched Thursday Night Football with the NFL stream exclusively on Amazon Prime. So the traditional model of positioning call-to-action messages, branding, and advertising opportunities on broadcast television may be yesteryear. Apple TV, for example, was a key player this past summer with the conference landscape shifting, mm -hmm. uh, especially on the West Coast. So this is, a, this is an interesting question for you here. Digital and social media and streaming, how it pertains to this, you know, I'm 42 years old here, and I think I'm watching more sports, and I have an iPhone, for those that are just listening in my hand, more sports, more sports on my iPhone than actually on a box in front of a couch. It's, uh, it's amazing. And I know our two youngest sons, my wife and I's two youngest sons, they're certainly going to be in that point as they get into uh, their um, passion for UVA sports because their dad is a diehard UVA guy. So I'll throw that to you, streaming and social and digital and anywhere you want to go on that topic. You know, it's, this show is streaming, for example. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's really topical for the, the revenue opportunities and the future of sports. I'll, I'll go a couple places, but I'll start with the NBA. The NBA's media rights deal, which used to be called a TV deal, is up this spring. And I stay in touch with people in the NBA league office because of my years in, in Seattle. I'm also hopeful that Seattle is going to get an NBA franchise back. In fact, I'm very, very optimistic about that. But what's one of the gating issues, if not the primary one, the economics for a new franchise, expansion franchise, is how big the new media rights deal is going to be. And the new bidders on that, you know, the, the traditional carriers we all know have been ESPN, ABC, TNT, uh, NBA has its own uh, you know, cable network, also NBA TV. But the new players, uh, you know, are the usual suspects. You name them: Apple, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix. Uh, did I say Amazon? You did. Okay, I'll say them again because I, I live in <laughs> Seattle. Uh, you know, those are all huge, well-financed companies that are now showing an inclination, if not strong interest, in. In live sports. In sports. Because yeah. that's how you drive your, your, your subscribers. Because you watch it in real time. Yeah, and they're willing to Stay subscribe sticky. to Amazon Prime yeah. in part because they're going to get some live sports content. Well, the, 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 whatever the dollar figure that 
the NBA negotiates with those streamers uh, in addition to the traditional carriers who are going to be there. We're uh, still interested, I'm told. And I, I saw Bob Iger from Disney talk about it. They're, they're very interested still in the NBA, and they've been a traditional you know, partner with the NBA. Well, th- that number will dictate owners' interest in diluting, a.k.a. expanding, their NBA revenue streams and really how much an expansion fee is going to be. So the, the NBA believes, and rightfully, and there's never been this much scrutiny on the NBA media rights deal for that reason, because we've we got CNBC here in the background. Mm-hmm. They talk about it all the time because it's so germane to the companies that they follow from a business perspective, yeah. what they're going to do with sports streaming. Now, what does that mean for college sports? Well, it, it, it's a potential for greater rights deals for conferences in the NCAA, although that's probably all going to change in structure. I'm not here to tell you what that means, but it, almost by definition, it, it has to change. The, the conferences and now players you know, have to get you know, a, a bigger piece of that is, is how I see it. They're not asking me, but that, that's how I see it. But where I think there's going to be a practical application for, you know, for universities and, and conferences, but let's, let's keep it at the university level, for the preseason tournaments, the, you know, the best known, the Atlant- one at Atlantis and the Bahamas, Nassau, mm-hmm. Maui Classic. Uh, but there, uh, there are a lot of them. You know, UVA played in Fort Myers last year, where the traditional model has been, okay, it's a nice trip for your, your players. You get some TV exposure. Your boosters may want to go to a warm place and, and, and spend a week. That's great. But guess what? That's expensive for the, for the universities. What I'm hearing uh, and, and reliably so, is a lot of entrepreneurs are looking for ways to both attract universities to come play in a tournament, pay their expenses because the content is valuable, do a deal with a streamer uh, to generate the con- content. Of course, that would include sponsors. They're going to have uh, sponsors to help pay. But the streamers are interested in, in that content and willing to pay for it. So therefore, that money will flow back in a different, better way for universities. So there's, there's a benefit there. There's nothing ta- t- tangible yet, but those conversations are, are, are beginning. I mean, that's, I mean, if you think about it, and this is my passion here, um, media and, 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 and monetizing media, especially digital, social, and mobile. We're doing a talk show right now with one of the greatest basketball players in Virginia history who, as Hootie said prior to the program, has arguably the most professional success of any UVA athlete, both on the court or the gridiron, on the court in your case, and then in the front office, Mm -hmm. right? And we're doing the show while 13 states are watching us. I'm looking at the heat map. I'm talking to the commenters while we're doing the show, literally interacting with them. For example, Jill Cavanaugh is watching the program right now. She says, Hootie and Walter, and it's giving you guys some props from her home. <laughs> I, I know Jill. Yeah, I know you do. I know, that's why I mentioned her. I, I pick one Hi, of the Jill. viewers okay. that you knew that you would know. Uh, highlighted her name. Um, I see so much potential in this. I mean, for instance, the non-revenue sports here. If someone could create a business model where take the squash team. I'm a huge squash fan where the Virginia squash team was traveling to, say, play Harvard or Princeton or Yale. There's so many, there's a, a, a micro market of fans that would love to see those matches played. But right now, all they can do is follow it digitally online with a box score, if you may. If someone could put a streaming uh, business together to follow this team as it goes away from the MacArthur Squash Center, stream them online, 
You could clearly monetize it with brand, the professional brands like Hero or Dunlop or Technofiber would be all over this. The University of Virginia would win. The athletes would win. The sponsors would win. I mean, there's just so much potential here. It's an untapped market. So I'll, I'll, I'll throw a question to you from Washington, D.C., watching to the program right now. This is Spencer who's asking this question. Does uh, your guest think that there's going to be a committee or a group or organization, maybe a subset of the NCAA, that is formed to potentially police or organize this so there's a little bit more structure when it comes to digital and, and uh, social monetization? Does that, does that really exist right now? I mean, Well, that's a, it's a great question. And I've said you know, all along through this process that we keep using the Wild West uh, metaphor, and, and, it, and it works. It applies. It's correct for mm-hmm. where we are currently in college sports. But you have to have a central organizing body of some kind uh, to enforce rules, to settle disputes, to you know put on tournaments. Uh, I mean, that's why you have a league office in, in all the professional sports. You have to have that because you have to have uh, officiating and you know there, you got to put on the games and the games have to be fair and people have to trust that the games are going to be fair. So uh, the NCAA has clearly lost some juice uh, based on this ruling because they would try to uh, keep it the, the, the old way of purely amateurism. Uh, and, you know, their revenue model is going to be under scrutiny by the, by the universities as the universities and leagues are looking for uh, more revenue. So where that goes, but whether it's, I hope it's the NCAA because they have the legacy. I think that would be the easiest and simplest way to do it. But you, you can't have college sports without some central governing body. I hear all this discussion about, well, the, you know, the, the conferences are going to go and going to uh, their own way and the Power Five and where you have football over here. Well, okay, you, you can talk about all that in theory, but you still got to have that, that central organizing body, and, and there's, there's a cost to that, and someone's got to decide who it is. And, and how much to pay for it. Well said. Um, more questions coming in fairly quickly. This is from James Watson, who's a UVA graduate. How does the panel think it's going to play out for non, non-money generating teams to travel all the way to California to play uh, back and forth on the East Coast to the West Coast during the week? It's a good question right there. Well, it, on the surface of it, it makes no sense. Uh, of course, student athletes having to travel and go to the West Coast and I've been on the West Coast for nearly 50 years, and I know it's not easy. You get, exactly. You, you, basically, you, from Seattle Recently, to Charlotte. Recently, you know it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, I told you that story. You, you basically, you can't get to Charlotte from, from Seattle, Washington. You know, eventually, you do, but it, it's, it's not easy. So, no, that, that's not the spirit of, of leagues and college competition. Well, there are some West Coast trips to have to do them regularly. Uh, but I know the universities are looking hard at ways to mitigate the travel, to do things more you know, on, on the same trip or meet for some sports, you can't do it for all, in the middle of the country in, in some way, shape, or form. So you, you, you are mitigating it, but it, it's not ideal. No one thinks it is. It's just the reality of the economics, and those are driven by football and, and, and actually football TV. Uh, this question's come in from Brian, who's a 78 University of Virginia graduate. Please ask him about the ACC Tournament Championship and what he remembers and his time at UVA during winning an ACC Tournament Championship and what it, what it was like to make an NCAA tournament, the first one in Wahoo history. Great question from Brian. Well, I, I actually, I'm still sort of amazed, but pleasantly so, that people remember it so long ago now. 
but I clearly do. I remember a, a lot about it and that ACC tournament special, which they did an incredible job on that. Yeah, they ran that last was, year those 10 episodes. Was, it was awesome. Was, one it of really the best was. things I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and they came out, their crew uh, of three came out and spent a whole day in Seattle. I was their only interview in the Northwest. In fact, when they called to say, do you know anybody else that's out here? That, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. So they, they, they took their time. They did their research. They spent a ton of money to produce it. And they got it right. Of course, they were complimentary to, to us and, and to me, so I liked it. Uh, but just the other history of the ACC, much of which I didn't know, going back to the 50s, and we've already mentioned every case, and I knew the name. I've got a nice plaque with his name on it, with my name on it. Uh, but I didn't know all he'd done to get the league to where what it became. So uh, it just I, I can remember, uh, and Billy Langland and I were, were – were, best friends, and, uh, but I can remember even after we won the first tournament game that year, we beat NC State, which we'd never beaten in my four years at UVA, and it ensured us a winning record. And I said, And then that, that's when they had David Thompson, too. No, oh, that, that was the year after David. That's right. That's but they, right. But they were ranked. They were ranked. They, they had Kenny Carr. Who but was you a, had lost to them in previous Yeah, years. we lost yeah. them in two regular seasons. And they, were, yeah. they were ranked. They were ranked whatever, the 18th, 19th, something like that. Yeah. And so a good team, a lot of NBA guys on it. And he and I saying after the game, we were roommates, too. Okay, we got a winning record. Just let's win the next game. Uh, we never beat Maryland either in my four years here. And so we, you know, that was obviously we were playing in Maryland. So for us, you know, we did a good job of focusing the game at a time. Uh, but I remember the satisfaction, of course, and to win it all of, hey, we did something for this university. We love the University of Virginia. And again, I'll, I'll say it. I, I can't believe people remember it or want to go back to it as much as they have, but I, I, I love it. Uh, but but it, it does, even if they didn't want to remember it, the, the fact that we know that we did something that hadn't been done before it is really gratifying. There are more viewers and listeners going into the history vault. This one from Lauren, who's watching, can he put in perspective winning two NBA championships versus an ACC championship and what meant more to him? That's a heck of a question. It's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can say unequivocally, emotionally, for me, winning an ACC championship was the, the, the most emotional experience I, I've ever had in sports, just for that reason. It was, it was cathartic. That's uh, the pinnacle of your sports career? On an emotional basis. From an, on an emotional basis. Wow. Yeah, not even close. Just because, you know, again, we've done something. Now, I also was fortunate to be on uh, two NBA championship teams. Portland, in 77, had never made the playoffs before. So, you know, for us to go from never making the playoffs to winning the NBA championship. And Seattle, uh, we win the championship in 79. But the 77-78 season, we were 2-10. We were 2-10 when I got traded there in November 1977. So we went from the worst team in the NBA to the finals that same year. And then we lost in Game 7 at home. To the, Remember when they called them the Bullets, mm -hmm. the Washington Bullets, uh, to win it the next year. So those, those were gratifying. I, I'm not trying to diminish that and just being a part of those because it was the, the first ever for those, those cities and communities too. But... Again, I, the, the emotional attachment for this place, and I, I hope it, it is, well, I, I, it's not for me to say, led to some of the other things that have happened here. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to think it helped. Don't you have a cool story about uh, you ran into a guy in the last few years who helped carry you <laughs> off the floor or something that, that, that night at the, in Greensboro? Or uh, Landover, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I met JPJ. This is five or six years ago, and a, and a guy taps him on the shoulder and says, do you remember me? I said, 
well, frankly, no. Uh, so, you know, help me out here. He said, well, you were on my shoulders for about 15 minutes. He's a guy who just hoisted me. Of course, we didn't have any rehearsal for winning a championship. We didn't contemplate it, hadn't done it before. He, he was a big guy, but still, I was on his shoulders for like 15 minutes. And I, I did say at the time, I said, you know, thanks for saying something. Uh, in my defense of not recognizing you, I never really did see your face. <laughs> I got a personal question for you. Gary Payton, one of my favorite basketball players of all time, what was it like to be in the front office when the glove was in his heyday? Well, he, he was great. Uh, when I became a general manager in 94, he hadn't really, he, he was really good, uh, but he, he was a really good defender, and we, you didn't know he was going to be a 20-point scorer. There wasn't anybody that I heard uh, that was saying, that guy, he's going to the Hall of Fame, and you know, he's going to be one of the top 75 players of, of all time. You know, I, I had done the broadcast for the team for the previous two years, so I saw him a lot in person, which was, was I'm glad because uh, – I seen him every day. You really appreciate how tough he was, and but he just kept getting better, particularly at the offensive end. Where by year 2000, and we did our own statistical analysis and on productivity, and our system, and I think it was pretty good on the analytics. He he was the best guard in the game. Uh, so uh, and we resigned him in '95. After the '96 season, we went to the finals. He was a free agent. So uh, it was my job. I, I, I got him signed for seven years. I had people saying, because Gary was a, could be a hard personality because he was demanding. <laughs> Absolutely. He, he yelled at people. Yeah. Uh, teammates would get frustrated with him. I had guys, teammates come in my office, players I respected to say, you know, Gary. I'm like, hey, Gary's going to be here. <laughs> Your job is, is to get along with Gary, not vice versa, because, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to replace him. What I was thinking, what I wasn't saying with you. Right. He'd probably replace you. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> uh, so uh, we did get him signed for seven years. Now, I also was in the front office, so there wasn't the general manager when we, uh, I'll tell you the story. <clears throat> when we traded Gary, he was 34 years old. Was that to the Heat? No, it was the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, the Bucks, that's right, yeah. So he was 34 years old, and he was a free agent at the end of the year. He was 34 years old. He was still good. He wasn't as good as he w- was a few years before, but he's still really good. I'm not saying that as a criticism, it's just father time is, is undefeated. Sure. So. Right at the trade deadline, we have a conversation with Rick Sun, who's the general manager, that, who's reporting to me, but he was, he was the one doing the deal, calls me the day before the trade deadline, says, Milwaukee's interested, and Ray Allen's in a conversation. I'm like, Ray Allen was 27 years old and already been an all-star, and at that point, we didn't know he was going to be a Hall of Fame player in the top 75 either, right. so a, a blockbuster trade, hard trade, because Gary was the icon of the franchise, but we weren't sure we were going to be able to keep him next summer, and he was, he was older. Uh, so I know there's going to be negative blowback. <clears throat> so I come into the office the next morning. It, it, social media wasn't as big then, uh, but you know there was sports talk radio. There, you know, the newspapers. We, you guys we, we remember were, were still widely read and followed. I didn't read anything. I didn't listen to sports talk radio. So I, I came in early, and our our head of marketing is, is there when I walk in. I said, "Well." How many responses did we get last night? There were email responses <clears throat> coming into the, the, the office. He said, we got a little over 800. Well, those 800 were, were a lot in, yeah, in those days. No question. So I said, well, we just got Ray Allen. You know, he's an all-star player. He's 27. Did we get 10% favorable? Shook and said no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, 5% favorable? 
Sugar said no. I said, uh, do we get any favorable of the 800 plus emails we got? He said, uh, no. <laughs> wow. He said, not, not a one was in favor of it. And he said, and by the way, tonight's game, uh, we've got security assigned to you. I said, okay, I'm probably better off not knowing what those emails said, right? <laughs> I said, no, that, that, would be, that would be wise. So that, that's how bad it was. And then and Ray just had Blew great, up. Blew up, had great yeah. news for us. He averaged 25, 5, and 5. Uh, and then just, he made, subsequent to that uh, trade, he made the all-star team seven years. So it, it was a really good trade as emotionally. It's uh, a great trade. Work. Yeah, it was a great trade. Yeah, in yeah. hindsight, you won the trade. Yeah, it, it didn't feel that way for, for a while as a Seattle resident, <laughs> as, a as, a, as, a, as a team president, but uh, uh, you know, it, it did work out. Um, how about this question for you? Um, the greatest basketball player you've played alongside, on the court with, and the greatest basketball player you've seen from the front office. Front office, I have an idea who you're going to yeah, pick. Yeah, yeah, I saw that a too much in 96. Uh, we'll start there since we already referenced We're it. We're going to go MJ? Yeah, yeah, you know, our team, our Seattle team in 95-96, uh, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, Detlef Shrimp, Sam Perkins, UVA fans who remember, yeah. Hersey Hawkins, it was, Nate McMillan went on the coach. Fantastic team. Fantastic team. Yeah. We were 64-18 and 18 after starting 6-5. and five. So that, at the time, was the 10th best record in the history of the NBA regular season. Uh, so teams that have won 64 games in the past won the championship. Well, uh, we played the Bulls. That It's pretty much consensus. I know it's not unanimous. That was the greatest team of all time, mm -hmm. the 95-96 Bulls. Uh, so we play them, and we'd already beaten them once in the regular season. We actually beat them in the preseason, too. It doesn't matter. But we, we, anyway, we had some confidence going in. Uh, Nate McMillan was hurt. But, uh, but we, we did win two games. Uh, but Michael was, was was Michael. He was such a great competitor, and so he he was the greatest I saw. And uh, you know, not he was before my time, but uh, I became friends with him. I, I hope I'm not using that term loosely. But Bill Russell lived in Seattle, and I used to uh, ask him to uh, join me for a game every year, and he would accept. It, and I would just sit and ask him questions, uh, and he would tell stories about you know his days with the Celtics and, and the NBA and. That was, that was fascinating. So just just be around that kind of greatness, uh, you know, after the fact was a, a real treat and honor for me. Now, I, I play with a lot of Hall of Famers in, in, in the NBA, um, including Ralph Sampson. His rookie year was my, my last year in the NBA. No one would pay me after that. Uh, when he was healthy, uh, Bill Walton, my rookie year, and – that was a big if because he was hurt a lot. But he, he stayed healthy through the playoffs and through, I think he played 60 regular season games that year. He was just so easy to play with. He was covered up defensive mistakes. If you're open for a second, he had the ball at the high post, the ball was on you uh, he, at the right place at the right time. He just had such a feel. So uh, and <clears throat> my best friend in Seattle was Jack Sigma. The longevity of just being there every night. Dennis Johnson was on our championship team, was, was a great player. Gus Williams was an all-pro player. Uh, but, well, uh, Bill Walton for, you know, when healthy for that year was the best I played with. What do you make of uh, LeBron basically playing at the, almost at the top of his game at nearly 40? It, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, now, uh, uh, Mike was the best player I've seen. I think he's still the, the greatest of all time. But LeBron's got to be in that conversation now. If he wins another title, 
there, there's going to be a, a groundswell. Again, it'll be an argument. We can have bar fights about that, uh, about <laughs> who, who's better. But for him to do it all these years, I went to see him in high school. The NBA All-Star game that year was in Philly. Uh, LeBron was playing Carmelo Anthony's team, Oak Hill. Oak Hill, yeah. They, they were playing uh, It was in Trenton. It was only about an hour drive. So all the NBA p- people in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon, drove up to watch LeBron James. None of us had laid eyes on him before. Right. Uh, and so, so we go in this, this little arena. And, and Carmelo, by the way, in the game had 35, 38 points. And we, he wasn't even noticed because we, we hadn't <laughs> laid eyes on, on, on LeBron before. And I can still remember clearly a guy named R.C. Buford, who, who will be in the Hall of Fame one day uh, as an executive from San Antonio Spurs. I know, I've known R.C. since I showed him around here when I was a first year, and he, he visited as a recruit. So we've been friends. That's a long time. So my, my cell phone rings, and we, we stay in touch. And I'm Seattle. He's San Antonio. So we're rivals in a way, but we're friends. My cell phone rings. He doesn't say hello. He, 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 no, no greeting, no, how you been? All he said was, can you believe what we just saw? <laughs> <laughs> That's how good he was. That's how incredible an athlete he was. For the first time, we laid eyes on him as, at that point of junior in high school. And the crazy thing about that, um, you mentioned Carmelo was kind of uh, under the radar because LeBron was that good. Carmelo goes to Syracuse and wins a national championship. The next mm-hmm. year. The next after, year. After we saw yeah. him. Yeah. After you yeah, see absolutely. him. Yeah. Most yeah. outstanding player of the Final Four, Carmelo, and then goes out to be a Hall of Fame basketball yes. player. In yeah. his career. Uh, questions are coming in. This is a great one from a mom who is watching in the Baltimore area. She says, my son is a standout athlete. How can standout athletes in high school compete in this day and age when it seems like the transfer portal is becoming the priority? Great question. Great question. I think what every kid should do, no matter what's going on with the system that we're currently in, is just prepare themselves to be as good as they can be Everything else take care of themselves. You know, go to a place where it feels like the right fit, where you're going to get an education. Yeah, I played eight years in the NBA, well, nine years professionally, including one year in Italy. You're still 30 years old, 31 years old. You've got to make a living. You've got to go do something. So the value of the education still should be factored in. I know it gets, gets lost in the shuffle often and probably too often, but uh, for, the, for that mom, make sure that, that the backup plan is in place. And, you know, I, I think it was Tubby Smith. You guys would know better than I was, but I saw a great quote from Tubby about the transfer portal that said, what are we teaching these kids? All, all they're learning is if there's a little adversity, they're not getting what they want, yeah. they leave. Yeah, that you, was Tubby. You, you, you got to battle through the adversity. I mean, that, that's, that's a life lesson that, uh, you know, is well learned if you're not, doesn't work out for you right away. And so... I hope we don't, well, I think we have lost some of it with the transfer portal, but I hope we get back to people who are willing to, to face adversity, to, to battle through and get, get to the other side with success there. Uh, so anyway, that, that, that young man, young woman should just, you know, practice hard, be as good as they can be, and uh, just go get it. Todd Rath watching the program. You may be able to close a deal here. He's the owner of Blue Toad Hard Cider and right. Nelson County watching the program. <laughs> he says, this is a little off topic, but what does uh, Wally Walker think of the chances of his Purdue Boilermakers making a deep run after losing to a 64 seed, much like UVA? Maybe we can tie in uh, UVA's bounce back from uh, getting ousted early in the tournament to the next year winning the uh, big dance into that answer. Well, one of the 
you know, of course, all great coaches take every kernel they can to motivate their team. And what Tony Bennett did with that, that first round loss was, was a coaching clinic, a, a lesson in psychology to turn that into, hey, we can't get to where we're going. I, you guys remember the saying better than I would uh, without going through the adversity that, that, that we dealt with there. Right. Uh, and to, to take that incredibly painful event uh, and, and turn it into a, a national championship motivation, uh, you know, that's just that's brilliant. So to the degrees uh, anybody's watching, and I'm sure Purdue or anybody else is, uh, they should learn that lesson too. And Matt Painter had a ringside seat for that too. Yes, he did. <laughs> they, they lost By the way, in overtime. that game might have been the single best game I've ever seen, the, the, the Purdue-Virginia game. The only one I think I ever saw better was when NC State beat UCLA in triple overtime in the national semifinals in 74. That was good. And as, as I was saying that, I went, uh, I was there. In fact, Billy Langlow and I sat in person for NC State, Maryland, ACC final in 1974. Yeah, that, yeah. that, was, that, was, before, that was an yeah. incredible game. Yeah. Uh, first thing you did, question for me, uh, first thing you did uh, when you got back to Charlottesville was the first thing you did. Restaurant, activity, trip down memory lane, all the above. Well, all the, I was back in December for a couple of weeks. I was here in October for some, but I've got some, some really close friends here. A lot of my, my closest friends from my undergraduate days have moved back here. So it's always getting together with them and, and seeing them early on. Uh, but for us, this, I already told you guys a story before we went on air. We got here with, with our dogs. They'd never been on a plane. Uh, and, of course, we're totally mystified what was going on with our life. They arrived in Charlottesville. So it, it, it was great fun for me to introduce them uh, to them, uh, you know, this town I love. My wife has been here a fair amount over, over the years. And, but for her now to find the Boar's Head Trails to take our Bernese Mountain Dog for a run. I mean, that, and for her to come back and say, that's great. You know, Max, our Bernese Mountain Dog, loved it. You know, it's just those little things that, you know, matter. This guy is a renaissance man. You are still got your broadcasting chops. I mean, the interview <laughs> has, been, practice, yeah. has been a breeze. Why don't, we, why don't we close down the interview? Guys, we've gone an hour straight of just fun with wonderful Wally Walker here. Close it down like this. What can we expect? What, uh, wind us down here. What can we expect with your tenure here? What's on your short list? Well, uh, I, I hope I can help us be at the place where we're not vulnerable to whatever happens, the travails of the conferences, the system, NIL, transfer portal, conference realignment, NCAA changes, whatever that is, we need to be out ahead and have the resources to be out ahead so we are, are not beholden to anybody else. The University of Virginia has got to be standalone, solvent, have the revenue streams that we need so that we can, whatever comes our way, we, we've got to be ready for it. And I, I, we, we have that capability. I will say this. The other thing that really attracted me to coming back was to hear Carla Williams, my boss, say, I want us to have the best athletic department in the country. Well, why shouldn't that be our aspiration? Why, why shouldn't we be thinking about that? So uh, any help I can do to, to help us get there, we've got a running start at it in a lot of ways. We, obviously, the places to improve, uh, your listeners don't need me to, to elaborate on those, but we've got a lot of great people in place, so uh, that's, that's the right aspiration. 
Fantastic interview, Hootie. Absolutely, and and I, I agree with what you said about being the number one athletic department in the country. I mean, Virginia wants to strive to be number one yep. at everything else, so why not that? Why well? not? Why, what are we doing if we're not if we're not striving for and that? And I think for, and I think the department's close. I mean, it's like a whiskers away from from being here. I yeah. mean, we look at some of the not you know the Olympic sports; they're there. Oh um, yeah, they are there. I mean, it's, we, we, we have an abundance of riches here with this athletic department, and maybe it's just a matter of uh, prioritizing or uh, understanding what is right here in our home that we have. I mean, from baseball to, to, to soccer to lacrosse to squash, I mean, we got top 10 teams and perennial national championship contenders all over the department. Yeah. Um, this has been a breeze. Uh, you've made this seriously easy. Uh, Wally that's Walker, why that's why I'm here. Make it easy. It, it was fantastically easy. Uh, Jerry Ratcliffe set this interview up. He's the star of our show, the Jerry and Jerry Show. His publication, jerryratcliffe.com. I'm on that website every day, jerryratcliffe.com. What do you have in the hopper, Hootie, on jerryratcliffe.com? Oh, we're just going to try to do some looks at the basketball team and some of the personnel. They don't play again until Saturday down at Wake Forest and keeping our eye on the football transfer portal because they've been pretty active. They've signed four guys or, or gotten four commitments rather in the last four days. So uh, Tony Elliott's been a pretty busy man. Yeah. <laughs> Wake Forest guys on the docket for Saturday. Uh, I believe that's a 2 p.m. Then I'm going to confirm right now it is a 2 p.m. tip off. Um, the Demon Deacons, a, a, a team that never won a discount. Um, Hootie, thank you. Absolutely fantastic. Judah Wickhauer, the man behind the scenes. For Wally and Jerry Ratcliffe, this is the Jerry and Jerry Show. Airs wherever you get your social media and streaming content. Thank you kindly for joining <laughs> us. We're back in the saddle next Tuesday at 10.15 a.m. right here on the I Love Seville Network. So long, everybody. Take care. It's awesome. He's going to tell us when the mics and cameras